Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like defunct teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show. And now, the man who has shared his unparalleled talent with the entire world for nearly a quarter of a century. The man whose impact on the true sport of the world is unequaled in any competition. The man whose elegance, dignity, and love of fellow man has surpassed all international boundaries. And the man who risked so much to give all of us here in the United States a new and ongoing appreciation of the sport he so dearly loves at the West Tunnel, Pele. And now all of the crowd straining for a look at him. He hasn't come into view yet. We can't see him from here, from every corner of this mammoth stadium. A magnificent place to view any sporting event. We're watching for Pele. Where is he? Because here he is, wearing for the last time the number 10 that he has made world famous. Edson Arantes do Nascimento of Brazil and the Cosmos of New York and New Jersey. Coming to play for the last time. Did you ever think you would see a crowd like that for a soccer game in the United States? Well, he's the man that has caused it. Pele, they chant. Pele, Pele. the kid. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Pele. They didn't send them. I am very happy to be here with you in this great moment of my life. I want to thank you all, everything what you offered to me. And I want to take this opportunity to ask you in this moment when the world Look to me to take more attention to the young, the kids all over the world. They we need them too much. And I want to ask you, because I think, I believe, love is the, uh, the, the more important than what we can take in life. Everything passes. Please say to me, say with me, three times. Love. 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 
Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, friends. We are full of love this week. Welcome to the proceedings. It is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. My name is Tim Hanlon the uh, host uh, and chief cook and bottle washer around here. And uh, we appreciate you finding us in the uh, vast array of podcast choices that you have in front of you on a daily and hourly basis. And uh, we could not be more pleased uh, that you have joined us for another fun-filled episode this week. Um, We take you back to the uh, mid-1970s and uh, that, uh, that clip there, Specifically, October 1st, 1977, where were you when Pelé, the great Pelé, the um, sadly recently departed Pelé, uh, played his last ever professional soccer match uh, of any substance uh, for the uh, New York Cosmos and Santos of Brazil, the only two professional teams, clubs, that is, that he ever played for and played with. Uh, there in front of a sold-out and uh, very wet and rainy giant stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. That was uh, what you heard and saw on ABC's Wide World of Sports uh, that afternoon. Yours truly uh, in the crowd sitting next to uh, Roberta Flack, uh, believe it or not. And I was actually in, I was a, a row in front of uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, the the uh, governor of uh, of New York at the time, Hugh Carey, was a uh, just a star studded crowd. I don't know why I was uh, in the, in that uh, that little grouping there, but that's where my dad and I had our tickets, <laughs> uh, just through luck or whatever. Um, but uh, a memorable moment, and then some uh, for us and yours truly as a Cosmos fan. But look, anybody who was a sports fan, I mean, Muhammad Ali was there, and. Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, people in the uh, stage, screen, television, sports, uh, uh, diplomacy, uh, 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 all kinds of uh, uh, people wanted to be there uh, for the last ever game uh, of Pelé's career. And uh, it was no question that in the brief time that he uh, came out of retirement to play for the Cosmos um, the two and a half, se- uh, the two and a half years, the three seasons he played for the Cosmos uh, transformed uh, the game in the United States, the trajectory of it for for sure. Uh, maybe in the immediate aftermath uh, and the death of the NASL, um, uh, perhaps uh, seemed bleak at the time. But there was make no mistake. Looking back now, where we are as a soccer country, the advent and the arrival and the influence of the man known as Pelé, Edson Orantes do Nascimento, um, was uh, uh, absolutely uh, unrivaled. And uh, for my uh, money, uh, the best player to ever play the game, and I will fight you on that. That is the topic of our conversation uh, this week with our guest, Charles Catone, who would know uh, all about uh, the arrival of Pelé, because he was part of the Cosmos organization back in the day. And we get into some of the uh, origin story of that. Um, But the uh, excuse for Charles to be on this show uh, is uh, uh, the new book that he has written uh, alongside the photography of the great George Tiedemann, 
that name should be familiar to you old Sports Illustrated fans and fans of, of, of many sports, boxing and, and the North American Soccer League back in the day. Uh, the book is called Pele, His North American Years, a tribute. Uh, it, is, uh, it features exclusively uh, some of the most memorable images that George Tiedemann ever shot uh, in his career, but certainly of the great man Pele and his time with the New York Cosmos in the North American Soccer League. And uh, great words and um, uh, conceptual um, uh, points of view by Charles Catone, our, uh, our guest this week. Uh, it, it is a wonderful book. I've had the opportunity of of seeing it for, Jesus, the last month or so. And it is being released today as we uh, drop this episode on October 23rd, 2023. Uh, you can uh, get yourself a copy of this book, and I would uh, suggest you run, not walk to get yourself a copy. Uh, just search up uh, this episode number t- uh, 322 on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up that episode, and you'll find a convenient link to Amazon. You'll get it uh, as quickly as humanly possible that way. We'll get a couple of referral pennies and nickels of love. We appreciate that. Uh, and if you are listening to us uh, during this episode, as we drop it on October 23rd, uh, and you happen to be in the New York City metropolitan area, at 3 o'clock this afternoon, you can go and get a copy of the book and meet uh, Messrs. Tiedemann and Catone uh, at the Palais store in Times Square. Well, they will be uh, signing books uh, and uh, regaling probably in some stories about it. So, again, that's three o'clock this afternoon, October the 23rd, if you're in the New York area at the Palais store right there in Times Square. I don't know exactly the cross street, but uh, you can't miss it because uh, it's pretty easily found. Um, but I also, though, as we get ready for this conversation with Charles in, in a moment, um, it was by no means guaranteed uh, that Pele's arrival for the Cosmos and with this uh, fledgling North American Soccer League was going to be a success in any great shape or form. Uh, and uh, while we celebrate and remember that uh, momentous uh, October of 1977 that uh, put uh, uh, sort of a, a nice uh, capstone on his brief but very um, uh, important and monumental time uh, in the United States, Pele, um, I actually take you back to a clip just before then. Uh, in 1975, when he first arrived uh, and he played uh, his first ever game, a uh, an exhibition match uh, with the Cosmos against the Dallas Tornado. And if you want to hear the story behind uh, how that game came together so quickly after his um, uh, uh, amazing signing and uh, uh, shot across the bow of the sports world, uh, you should listen to our episode with Kyle Rowe Jr., that we had a number of years ago. Uh, that is a, a, a wonderfully uh, um, uh, uh, amazing conversation that's chock full of, of information about all of that. Uh, but here's the uh, way that that first broadcast on CBS, that's June 15th uh, of 1975, ended uh, with a, uh, a, 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 it really puts it into context at that time as he arrived, just finished playing his first game, a 2-2 tie with the Dallas Tornado, an exhibition game. Uh, Jack Whitaker, the poet laureate of CBS Sports at the time, here's what he had to say at the immediate end of that game, uh, live from the uh, the field, uh, whatever was left of it there at Downing Stadium on Randall's Island. Thank you very much, Frank. I think perhaps symbolic of the state of professional soccer in the United States these past few years has been this stadium in which today's game was played. 
Downey Stadium on Randall's Island in New York lies like a derelict under the arches of the Triborough Bridge. It was built in the Depression of the 1930s, and it has worn down, peat peeling, and very weak light of the arena. A sandlot, if you will, in a city of glass and steel. To lift soccer out of stadiums like this, to lift it out of the darkness into the sunlight of a well-seated pitch, is the task that has now fallen on the shoulders of Pelé. And it certainly will be one of the most interesting sports stories to chronicle in the next few months. To see if this man at the age of 34, some of his artistry dimmed by age and come back, to see if the magic of his reputation and his skills can give prominence to soccer in the only country in the world that has treated it with apathy. Now, Pele will have some help in this. The North American Soccer League has been working very quietly and diligently these past few years. We veterans who remember the 67 and 68 years with the unpronounceable names and the empty ballparks and the increasing flood of red ink know that there have been some changes. Most important is the fact that more youngsters in the United States play soccer today. And it is from them in years to come that the stars will come, like Kyle Rowe Jr. and more importantly, more soccer fans. In the meantime, the task is Pele's and I think he's up to it. Because this afternoon for an hour and a half, this wasn't a worn out stadium with the paint peeling. It was a gay sunlit place and we cheered his artistry. For Ben Wright, Frank Lieber, this is Jack Whitaker from Downing Stadium, Randall's Island, New York. All right, longtime listeners may uh, know that I played that clip uh, once or twice before, but I constantly come back to it uh, as a, a seminal uh, moment in Cosmo's soccer history. Um, it's so, so beautifully written and delivered by Jack Whitaker, and, and you should really look for it on, on YouTube because uh, it's it's doubly um, – Impressive in the fact that he is uh, remotely away from the camera that is uh, sort of further away in the stadium. Uh, he is standing uh, in the middle of the uh, uh, green painted field, uh, what left is left of it from the game, uh, and uh, is delivering that without notes uh, in the midst of uh, various craziness and people on the field and, and all that kind of stuff uh, underneath the Triborough Bridge uh, uh, there in, um, in between Manhattan uh, and um, uh, and Brooklyn slash Queens there uh, in the New York area. And um, again, it sets the tone. Um, nothing was guaranteed, uh, and Pele's arrival was uh, obviously a crapshoot uh, and a, uh, a crossed finger or two uh, in the uh, the future trajectory of, of professional soccer. And I think mission accomplished, certainly by the time he left in 77. Uh, it might not have crystallized until perhaps the um, – the arrival of the World Cup in 94, uh, the debut of Major League Soccer in 96. But fast forward to today, uh, where MLS has uh, almost 30 teams now, and uh, just uh, soccer is uh, much more of a common thing uh, in the American sports landscape. And certainly the international game has grown uh, and is uh, well regarded and followed in this country, too. So I think you could easily say that Pelé, during the mid-1970s, in the North American Soccer League had some kind of effect on where we stand today. And um, that's the topic of our conversation. Here it is uh, with the great Charles Catone. Uh, I enjoyed this uh, conversation thoroughly. I think you'll hear that throughout. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did, as always. Please enjoy. For our listeners, um, give us a little bit of background about you 
uh, because I know for a fact that you've been sort of a long time uh, laborer in the uh, the world of quote unquote soccer journalism before that was even a thing. And I think if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly from my uh, somewhat hazy uh, young uh, childhood, middle, middle, uh, middle childhood years, uh, I remember your name floating around, I think, on the Cosmos uh, masthead somewhere, like public relations or something like that. Do yes. I have that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually and, you know, your 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 podcast is about defunct leagues. And I could probably spend 10 minutes going down a list of all the ones that I have either worked in or covered. OK, alphabetically, <laughs> please. <laughs> um I helped shut down the ABA league office when they merged with the NBA. I uh, started my career with the New York Stars in the World Football League. I uh, worked for the Cosmos. I did projects for the NASL league office. I did uh, projects for the American Soccer League, league League office. I was the PR director for New York United in that American Soccer League, was the PR director for the New Jersey Eagles in the later American Soccer League. Um part owner of the Penn Jersey spirit in that American soccer league. Uh, I worked in the women's basketball league, uh, name a soccer league in the last 50 years. I've certainly covered it. Um, did projects for the national lacrosse league. Uh, what am I forgetting? Oh, we, we ran news bureaus for the international hockey league, the United hockey league, uh, the continental indoor soccer league, um, own two minor league football teams, one in the Atlantic Coast Football League, and I don't even remember the name of the league of the other one. <laughs> All right, well, let, let, let's talk about. Let's double click on that, and we can talk about the, this book that you've got uh, coming out with George, uh, sort of as part of that. But let, I, I really want to dig into this because uh, your story is. Uh, 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 you know, uh, a perfect, I think, example, almost exquisite of um, the craziness of uh, startup leagues, 1970s, 1980s, a bunch that you're mentioning soccer in particular. Um, let's start, though, I guess, with um, uh, how did you get to the cosmos around this time um, that we're sort of going to be talking about relative to Pele and then. Maybe give me a sense of sort of like how that sort of uh, a, a small but mighty gang of folks kind of uh, repeated themselves as stuff moved along. Like you mentioned the New York United, for for example, maybe a quick example here. Why don't you tell our audience about the New York United situation? Because the one I remember in particular, uh, if I don't if I'm not mistaken, the New York Apollo of the ASL sort of became or, or translated themselves into New York United. And if I'm not mistaken, they were part of like uh, a couple of games at Shea Stadium back in the day that drew not even a thousand fans. Exactly. Um, well, a after I I had spent the better part of um, almost six seasons with, with the Cosmos. Um, and I'm sorry, these years were when? I started with them in 75 and was there um through like may of 1980 um a good part of it working either part-time or full-time in the front office but also part of that when i decided to go do things on my own um i remained working on projects and also game day staff 
Um, so I, I supervise after I was no longer full time in the PR department, I uh, still supervised the press box um, on game days. Um, I was full time in the office. Well, part time in the office, like after school and in the summer in 75 and 76 kind of started. So you were, you were in college at the time for this. I was in high school at the time. Wow. We, uh, as a matter of fact, I started with the cosmos, um, before I had graduated elementary school. Do tell. Um, okay. So how does that happen? Give us the origin story then. Well, I, I had spent a year before working with the New York stars in the world football league. Um, and it was just one of these things that the way it really started was um, 10, 11 years old, myself and my schoolmates, we used to write to the sports teams and say, you know, send us pictures, send us a sticker, send us, you know, whatever souvenirs. Um, and I got the bright idea that, hey, maybe you'll get better or more stuff if you like show up at their offices. So um, I started going into Manhattan from Brooklyn when I was uh, about 12 years old on the subway. What, what, what um, they would today call a stalker. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do that today with, with the security and stuff in the buildings where you have to have a, you know, you have to have a meeting with someone and you need a security pass. You couldn't just like, you know, roll up and walk into the NBA office like I used to. Um, but I, I started doing that. And, you know, most of the people at the at the offices were friendly and and I actually became friends with quite a few of them um and the New York stars were just starting up so you know they were they were among the friendliest because you know hey a fan um and when school ended that that summer I said hey you know I'm looking for a summer job something to do and you know they hired me I you know I I was mostly getting like tips from the coaches for going to pick up their lunch and stuff like that. Um, but after that, that first season there, I was made aware of the cosmos because we shared Downing stadium. Um, and so the following year, pretty much the same thing, um, walked into the cosmos office and said, you know, I'm looking for an after school job and, and in the summer, and uh, John O'Reilly, who was the team PR director, um, you know, hired me, got paid a couple bucks an hour, whatever it was, minimum wage. Um, and, you know, did whatever they asked me to do. Well, that required which, a, a whole bunch of chutzpah, right? I mean, uh, so I'm, I'm guessing you had some kind of inclination for English writing, uh, sports uh, interest or the, the sport of soccer uh, oh. generally. It, soccer, I was absolutely clueless at the time. I, I barely knew that it existed, but just sports. So it was just, you know, it, it was something different. It it was interesting. And and frankly, you know, they were the ones that were willing to take a chance on a 13-year-old. Okay, so let's start. So 74 is the New York Stars, right? Yeah. Um, so Downing Stadium, uh, okay, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, describe to me what you remember. We've had Upton Bell on this show. We've had John Sterling on this show. And we all know that the stars weren't even, they didn't even last a full season. What did you know going in and, and what did you see and do for the short time that they were there? Um, 
at at the game days, I was basically I ran stuff from the press box down to the coaches, um, you know, the lineups, the stat sheets, distributing things to what media was there. The radio booth was in a separate box. So, you know, any of the stat sheets, things like that, um, you know, pretty much what whatever needed to be done. When the team moved to Charlotte, I helped pack, pack boxes in the office, um, you know, ran to get the coaches lunch, um, learned how to run the mimeograph machine, things like that. Stapled a lot of press releases. We, as I recall, we had a mailing list of about six or seven hundred at the time um for our weekly releases um so that was you know that was a, a big part of my saturdays every every uh every week it was what, going what was what was game day like and and when did you know things were going sideways oh i i i think we kind of knew things were going sideways after the first game um i mean I, if i remember the attendance for the first game was maybe 16 17000 which was really good. Um, but the experience at Downing Stadium was not a particularly good one. It was difficult to park. It was difficult to get to. It was more difficult to get out of because everybody was trying to get out all at once. Um, explain, and, I'm sorry, explain to our audience the geography of, of Downing Stadium and Randall's Island on which it lo was located. Randall's Island is an island between Manhattan and Queens, that has one of the pillars of the Triborough Bridge on it. Um, the only way really to get there is by car. There is no mass transportation. Uh, you can take the subway to a stop in Astoria, but it's a very, very long walk across the bridge. Uh, same thing with a stop in, in Harlem, a, a very long, long walk. So it, it's not convenient at all to get to. Um, it was built in the 30s uh, as part of the Works Project Administration um, under um, FDR's New Deal. Um, the lights that were in the stadium in the 70s were reclaimed after they tore down Ebbets Field um, when the Dodgers left. Um and as I recall, most of the stanchions had more bulbs that didn't work than ones that did, because I think by 1975 and the city was on the verge of bankruptcy, but you couldn't get lights for light poles that were made in the 40s. So things tended to be in the dark. Well, that sounds like, OK, so and then with the stars kind of fumfering around and ultimately leaving in, in the most bizarre fashion. Um, why? Okay. So then explain to me as you get into the Cosmos organization, why Downing Stadium then, given that experience, and I'm sure people suggested to the then fledgling ownership or the relatively new ownership at the time that, um, this may not be the best solution. Um, but then again, it was closer to New York city proper, so to speak, than, where the team had been playing out on Long Island, right? Right. Well, the team started in 71 playing at Yankee Stadium um, and and drawing, you know, a few thousand people in a 63 in a 63,000 seat stadium 
was not a particularly good look. Uh, so they did. They moved out to Hofstra and, and played two seasons at Hofstra um, and then moved to Downing Stadium in 1974. Because, again, I think, that, like you say, the thinking was, well, it's in New York City rather than um, way out on the island. Um, and I, I think the thinking at that point was already, I mean, Clive Toy tells the story that, you know, he knew in 1971 he wanted to sign Pelé. So I think perhaps thinking ahead at that point that knowing that the new stadium in the Meadowlands was eventually going to be built or that Yankee Stadium was being renovated, I, I think they just wanted to be closer closer to the city and some of it may have just had to do with it being closer and easier for the warner communications people to get to the game problem was in new york at that time and even now there was no ideal place to play yeah well um i i think also too um it's uh a reflect well I, I there was actually a bit of history though because i i, I if i remember correctly the the old international soccer league which was the ni- early 1960s wasn't really a league per se, but it was more, I guess, a, uh, an incarnation, I guess, of what we today would see as the summertime tour thing of the European and South American teams and stuff. But they they would play a lot of games at, at Randall's Island over time. Again, that was the early 60s. I'm sure the stadium was not even up to that uh, sort of uh, 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 well, experience. The, the, then. The stadium, the stadium did have a fairly long history. I mean, Je- Jesse Owens ran there to qualify for the 36 Olympic Games. Um, there were a number of, uh, uh, foreign, uh, tour games in the forties and fifties that, that were played there. Um, the U S national team played a game against basically an England B team, uh, before they went to the 1950 world cup when they pulled off that, that big upset against the England a team, um, so it it did have a history of 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 hosting soccer and and yeah um the international soccer league did play a couple of seasons there they started out in the polo grounds um but when the mets were formed uh they had to move and they and they went and played most of their games at randall's island i think the big thing you know talking 12 15 years later it was a city-owned stadium and and by the mid-70s the city of New York was on the verge of bankruptcy. So maintaining that facility was not a high priority. Uh, So it kind of went into disrepair. And that was a bit of the same situation with Yankee stadium and why, you know, they needed the, the, the complete overhaul of the stadium because things were not maintained as well as they should have been. Yeah, and we we've also talked uh, about 1975 in particular and Shea Stadium not being an option because there were four teams literally playing in Shea. I I do think eventually the Cosmos did play a playoff game or two at Shea. I don't know if it was in 75, but certainly in a year or two uh, around that era, maybe 76 or something. Uh, 1976, we played the Washington Diplomats uh, in a one-game playoff um, at Shea. Uh, because Yankee Stadium wasn't available, the Yankees had made the uh, the postseason for the first time in more than a decade. Yeah, it just speaks to the 
and ironically still kind of is the same case today as NYCFC's uh, a sojourn uh, has shown is there was not there were not many options for the Cosmos in 74 and certainly in 1975 to play. This was pretty much it, despite of despite its decrepitness. Yeah, exactly. All right. So explain to me now this Cosmos organization. Uh, so you were there essentially when the Black Pearl uh, Pele uh, came to this uh, to this franchise and, and obviously is uh, a part of the spark of of, of what this book uh, that you and George have put together. Um, maybe explain to me sort of the Cosmos circa 1974 going into 75 and the I guess the groundswell behind Pele actually getting to the team, because you mentioned this goes back years earlier in Clive Toy's mind. Um, when did you in the organization kind of recognize that this thing may go from dream to possibility and then from possibility to reality? Well, I I started with the team in early May of 75. Um, and the team had come very close to signing George Best earlier that year. Yeah, that's a. am sorry. That's a key point. You want to explain that? Because I think a lot of people completely missed all of that, that, that he was almost the he was literally the first uh, choice or chase, not Pelin. Yeah, he was. And and actually, it was I, I think the two sort of chases coincided because the wooing of Pele had been going on for quite some time. Um, but George Best had agreed to play for the Cosmos. Um, and, and like I said, this was a little bit before I started there, but the story that I have heard Clive tell many times, and I believe is also in, in his book, is that Best had agreed to play for the Cosmos, and they were literally going to have a press conference to sign the contract, and George never showed up. Um, went on one of his famous benders or something and just didn't show up. Um, so the, the, then the, the, the more attention was turned to really going after Pele and there were meetings and, you know, Clive was, I, I think this was in the days before there was such a thing as frequent flyer miles where he might've very well owned an airline by the end of it. Um, you know, given all, all the chasing that was done. Um, but I, I think it was around the time that I had started it was only the second or third game that I had ever gone to. Um, Pele was flown in by helicopter to um, come and watch the team play. And it was the biggest crowd of the season. And I, I was up in the up in the press box and Downing Stadium was an old concrete horseshoe. And they landed the helicopter in the open end of the stadium. And it was really kind of surreal standing there up in the press box, watching almost everybody in the stadium run to that end of the stadium, where you really almost got the feeling that, you know, it was going to kind of pop off its, its moors and do a sort of um, seesaw effect from all the people running to just the one end to see Pele step out of the helicopter. Well, did people know he was going to show up? I guess that, that yes, yeah. it, 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 it was that it, part it, of the promotion. It, it no, it had been in the media. I mean, just that, you know, the team was trying to sign him and things were close and 
and he was in town for the talks and he was going to come and see the team play. Um, and to that point, that was the largest crowd of the season um, and maybe pretty close to the largest crowd ever. And and what and what happened? Did, did he get out? Was he swamped? What happened? Oh, no, he wasn't. I, I don't recall him being swamped because it was, you know, security and, and that was was kind of prepared for it. And he made his way to a seat in the stands um, and and watched the game. Um, and it was probably two, maybe two weeks later that he agreed, uh, to come and play. And, and they finalized, uh, they finalized the deal. Uh, there was a press conference at the famous club 21 in New York, which had, had been a prohibition era speakeasy. And you were um, there, you were there for that mayhem. Yes. I, I actually was not in the club the 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 space was so small um that most of the staff did not go in we were outside we were outside the building uh because there were just so much media um uh, there was a brawl started among photographers in there it, it was so crowded what what did you think of the entire mania of that day and the day leading up to it and all that kind of stuff did you did you kind of recognize in the moment that sports in new york and and in the united states at least at that moment had kind of shifted or bent a little bit in terms of uh the world order i i i think you could immediately even even not really knowing much about soccer at that point i mean you know i guess i had you know i i was voracious in terms of of reading things and i read all three new york papers you know sports sections from end to end back then um i think you just knew something special was happening but we still really didn't know what i i don't think I don't think anybody really knew what, you know, what to expect here. And, and the thing is, when, you know, you look at New York and you look at New York sports history, I mean, it it's all about the stars, you know, to, to go from a couple of thousand people to, 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 you know, 10 or 12,000 people just coming to see this guy step out of a helicopter. It's like you really knew something special was going on here, even if you had no clue what was going on. All right, let me talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook. Hey, NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back in DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at even bigger basketball wins. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOODSEATS. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with that code GOODSEATS. DraftKings Sportsbook 
The crown is yours. <sighs> Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling by calling 888-789-7777 or visiting ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas. Licensee partner, Golden Nugget Lake, Charles, Louisiana. 21 and over age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. And now back to our conversation. All right. So what did you what did you and the organization uh, know and uh, have to do from from that moment of the signing to his first game? How much time was there between that event and him stepping onto the field and maybe a little bit of background about that first? I don't even call it a game because it's an, it was an exhibition. It wasn't even a real league game. It, it was an exhibition uh, against the Dallas Tornado. Now, he signed the contract. The Club 21 press conference was June 10th. And the Cosmos had a road game against the Philadelphia Adams that night in Philadelphia at Veterans Stadium. Um, the entire staff went down on a bus. The executives went down in limousines. Um, Pele kicked out the first ball. Uh, the Adams had to that point, the biggest crowd of that season. Again, just to, there, there may have been some thought that he was going to play that night, but I don't think that that was ever a, a really a possibility that, you know, he was going to go from signing his contract to, to getting in a car and, and, you know, going two hours to Philadelphia and, and, and run out on the field. Um, he kicked out the first ball. Um, and then his first game, was June 15th, five days later. So it was like a, a Tuesday to Sunday thing. Um, to give you a sense, the Cosmos offices at the time um, were at 101 Park Avenue, uh, which was 40th Street, just south of Grand Central Station. Um, second floor, overlooking park avenue but the office was literally four rooms um clive toy had his own office john o'reilly had his own office he was the team's public relations and promotions director gordon bradley had a very small office and then there were two other little small rooms and a reception area i i don't know what the square footage of it was but it it wasn't very big and the staff wasn't, but maybe six or seven people. Um, the team never had a marketing director before then. And they hired a marketing director um, who sat on the couch in the reception area. And we ran a phone extension that sat on the coffee table. And that's where he worked from. Because there was no space in the offices. 
And when did that change? When did 75 Rockefeller Plaza come along? In that off season. Moving it, on, moving on up like the Jefferson song was. It 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 was. Um it was it, it was a it was a big it was a big move to move into that that building which was um where all of Warner Communications other other companies were. Um we moved in, I believe it was the fourth floor. Atlantic Records was one floor below us. Licensing Corporation of America, which handled all of the sort of property rights of, you know, merchandising and things like that. And and, and that was part of the agreement with Pele. Licensing Corporation of America got the rights to license and market his name. So we have things like Pele lunchboxes and, and, and things like that from that era. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a big deal to move into that, uh, that space. Um, and that was a, that was a half a floor, um, in the 75 Rockefeller center building. And then by the end of, uh, the 77 season, they added a ticket office in the basement. And by the end of 78, it moved to another full floor in that building. Yeah, so for the for those who are not sort of native New Yorkers, seventy five Rockefeller Plaza, literally right across the street from the uh, uh, the skating rink, and and it's all sort of you know, and obviously NBC, NBC is like a stone's throw there from there, and the um, the dynamic there, right? I mean, you're describing essentially both physically as well as um, I guess psychically. Uh, this is the integration, if you will, and the validation, if you will, of this team as part of the bigger constellation of this Steve Ross driven uh, circus tent known as Warner Communications, which has so many different parts to it. Um, but I mean, it's the epitome of big time back in the day, big time conglomerate media wise. And uh, it's uh, it had to be a heady experience given from where you started. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And 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 that and, you know, the move to Yankee Stadium in, in 1976, um, even though, again, it was not ideal in terms of soccer, it was certainly already a world away from Randall's Island in, in terms of, you know, the the, the, the the playing surface, even though, you know, part of it was on the grass infield in, in terms of, you know, locker rooms and there were suites in the new stadium and, you know, the press facilities and the dining facilities and you know, everything there it was just it, it was just a, a world, um, a world of difference. You know, you 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 were in the major leagues at that point. Um, you know, there there was no question. So so descri- describe to me, though, Pele in 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 conjunction and or in parallel with this, because is this all because of his arrival or was this kind of in motion and he was the proverbial cherry on top? Because no. it's it's hard to just I you were there you tell me I I I don't believe that it would have happened if Pele had said I'm not coming I, I you know if he had landed that day in Randall's Island and looked at Randall's Island and said you know oh my God this place is a dump I'm not gonna now he had already played there before he had played there with, on tours with Santos um, in the early in early to mid 60s. So if he had gotten off that helicopter and said, not a chance, um, the team doesn't move. 
the offices don't move out of the 101 Park Avenue building. The team doesn't move into Yankee Stadium. And honestly, in my opinion, soccer in 2023 is not what we see right now. Because if you really look at the history of most sports, nothing happens without some sort of big bang. And Pele signing with the Cosmos was soccer's big bang. Baseball was already popular in the 20, you know, in, in the teens. But Babe Ruth was certainly a big bang for baseball. I think changed the trajectory of the sport. Football, pro football, the big bang was that Giants-Colts championship game in, in 1958. Yeah, the greatest game ever played. Greatest game ever played. Um, you know, for hockey, which had been a six-team league for a long time, I think the Big Bang kind of started with the expansion, but the Big Bang really was then Wayne Gretzky 10 years later. Um, without Pele coming, I'm not sure that that soccer is much more than a minor sport in 2023, even though it's been 50 years, because things tend to not just kind of grow steadily. It's not possible to do that. Not really. And, and you look at some other leagues that, that have been around for a long time, but you wouldn't really say, Oh, they're successful there are other sports leagues that have been around 20, 30 years, but there's not this sort of slow, steady growth. It's just, they're kind of there and they haven't had that big bang moment. And I don't know whether any of them ever will. Um, maybe the WNBA is on the verge of that. A lot of it having to do just with sort of the growth of women's sports overall, but I, I really think, you know, Pele was the big bang moment. The league didn't survive, but the sport did. And it planted the seeds. And well, that's why we have Lionel Messi here now. That's why we have teams playing in their own stadiums. Um, that's all as a result of Pele stepping out of that helicopter in 1975. Yeah, I actually look at this almost as a sort of a, a multi-dimensional sort of a, a, a series of rings, if you will. Right. So uh, in many respects, you've just described kind of the, the outer ring of this. And we'll talk about the parallels to Messi in a minute or two. But if you kind of go a ring inward or even the two rings inward, right, you look at uh, the Pele years, uh, which obviously this book is, is focused on 1975 to 1977 is probably the most micro microcosm of this, of that, of what you just said, um, because literally it's kind of BC and AD, right? When, uh, and, and then you, you can radiate out. Then that's what made the NASL stick around for so long, become a huge spectator sport. Um, and then that reverberated on a, on a classic basis. Let, let's dig in though, to that micro micro, uh, realm. What, what, how has your life changed professionally now that he was on board and stuff, I mean, what, was it just Pele and the circ and the traveling circus, or was it just kind of, hey, this is now a true New York worthy professional sports team, and we need to kind of elevate our game 
overall? And I mean, what were your day to day? Your day to day must have changed. Um, I think the biggest thing that changed was really there was so much more interest from the media being in the PR department. Um, you know, there was just a lot more media to deal with. Um, and as you know, as that part of that move from into the Rockefeller Center office, um, you know, there was an huge expansion of the staff to where, you know, we, we suddenly had, you know, directors of sales for tickets and sponsorship and marketing and the PR and promotions department were split in two. So, um, uh, Jim Trecker was brought in to, to, to head public relations and, and John O'Reilly was, was in charge of promotions. Um, so I, I think that was, you know, probably the, the, the big change. I mean, for me at that point as a 13, 14 year old kid, um, it, it, it was still an after school job. So I was still doing what, you know, pretty much whatever I was asked to do. Um, the biggest change for me came in 1977 as things started to grow when I was basically told that I needed to start dressing better to come into work. And a few more, uh, well, I wouldn't say subway tokens, but you had to go to Giant Stadium, which is a at least a toll or two, too. Uh, um, yeah, get, getting to Giant Stadium was interesting. I mean, mo- most of the time... Um, I would I would go out with with somebody from the office because we we'd be out there three four hours before a game. Um, gates typically open two hours before, uh, so if it was a seven o'clock game, um, we'd we'd probably be at the stadium by by um, no later than four. Um, so I, I would I would get a ride with somebody, and then I would get a ride with somebody back in into the city. Usually one of the riders. Um, made that trip back a lot with Alex Yanis from the New York Times. Um, it, it wasn't until I think the following season that my parents kind of got into it and started to come come to all the games. Uh, so I always had a ride to and from. Um, but yeah, that that was you know that was a big change. How about sure. your intera- how about your interactions with Pele himself? Uh, how was he towards you? Did you have any interactions with him? Did you do any special things, uh, promotional things with him, et cetera? Um, I, I did, I actually, my, my first interaction, um, and, and this is, you know, this is part of where kind of the essays, um, the essays from the book come from, um, my first interaction with him was at the first game that the team played, that he played for the team, um, at Randall's Island. Um, I had been involved in painting the dirt before the game. All right, stop right there. Tell me, tell, reveal that story a little for those who don't know it. Okay. Uh, This is one of those that has become mythical in soccer, kind of like Babe Ruth's call shot or whatever. But I could attest to it that it, that it is true. Randall's Island, the field was such a mess, mostly dirt. Um. The decision was made because the game was going to be broadcast on CBS live on a Sunday afternoon to paint the dirt green. So we got to we got to the stadium about 10 o'clock that morning. I I believe it was a two thirty game. Um, 
I was handed a galvanized watering can, a gallon of green paint, and went to work painting the dirt green. Um, what was the what was the grass to dirt ratio? Would you say of the field and rocks? A lot of rocks, uh, a lot of glass that had to be picked out. Um, I would say it was maybe close to 50-50. And, you know, if, if you look at the pictures that are in the book, um, you can see my handiwork on the, on the dirt. Um, you know, and it wasn't just me, but, but you can see the places clearly where it's obviously dirt that has been painted green. Um, I had just graduated elementary school and my present from my parents, which is what I wanted, was a pair of Puma Clyde suede shoes. And I wore those that day, walking around with a watering can full of green paint, pouring that green paint on dirt. Needless to say, the shoes were green by the end of the day. My mother was not very happy. But my first interaction with Pele came that day in the locker room. Um, I went into the locker room after the game, and it was packed with media. You couldn't move. They ultimately moved everybody outside and did the press conference in the stands. Um questions being asked and answered in a bullhorn. But anyway, I, I stepped into the locker room with a program in my hand, hoping to get Pele to sign it. And to this day, I don't know how he saw me in that crowd. But he was sitting on his stool in front of his locker, and he put up his hands, and it was like Moses parting the Red Sea. He said, my friend, my friend. And the, the people just kind of moved. And I I came up and and handed him the program and he signed it for me. And that was that was the first time that I that I had met him. Um he would be in the office um during the off season and, and he actually had an office in the in the Warner building. So I, I did get to know him um that way and just you know i mean he the thing about pele and I, I think anybody who's ever met him to their dying day will never forget when and how they met him because that's just that's just how he was um he he treated everybody um you know, he greeted everybody with a smile. It didn't matter if you were, you know, the kid who was painting the dirt or the president of the club. He he had time for you. He spoke to you. Um, he made you feel like you were important. Back to that game for a second, though. There was an uh, there was uh, another part to that story, though, around halftime of that game that you, I don't think you were you were physically not there. But can you re regale our audience with that? And, and was that true or was that apocryphal? 
you know, the, the thing about the thing about Pele saying he wasn't going to play because of the green, the green on his shoes. I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, the first time I ever heard that story told was in that documentary. I, I had never heard that before. Um, so I don't know whether it was true or not. Yeah, it makes for a good story to say, hey, I think this is kind of fungus on my uh, feet here and I can't do this anymore. But uh, but it does speak, though, to the um, the, the, the length to, I guess, uh, shore up the rickety ship uh, to, to at least uh, uh, feign some level of uh, big time professionalism, because clearly the day he arrived, it wasn't there. Uh, but by the time he left the franchise, uh, it was, it, it, symbiotically, um, boy, what a complete 180 degree change. Oh, yeah. I mean, a- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, by 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 the time 1977 rolled around, um, you know, the by the time the end of the season rolled around, um and and we were drawing the big crowds uh, which started in in june with a game against the the tampa bay rowdies um and i i think that i think if memory serves me i think the league attendance record was broken five times in that season um but by by the time that the season ended i mean we yeah and this was a year that the yankees you know the Bronx Zoo and 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 the Bronx is burning and and you know certainly on the back of the tabloids. There's there the blackout that summer too. The blackout that summer, um, when Carlos Alberto flew in that night. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was son of Sam. I mean, there was so much going on, and the week that we um, won the conference championship to qualify for the soccer ball was the same week that Elvis Presley died. And Elvis was the biggest thing on the front page of the tabloids. And we were the biggest thing on the back page of the tabloids. The Yankees had been pushed to inside pages. Yeah, it, it was insanity. And I was I was a kid at the time uh, in the New York metropolitan area. And and it's 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 really hard to describe it. And the documentary and, and some other memories and stuff. We had a bunch of people on the show kind of talking about that. But I I, I am it's flabbergasting to me. I mean, uh, to to just to, to just three seasons and his arrival uh, uh, as part of that or because of all of that. Right. Downing Stadium, painting the field green and picking out rocks and glass to a brand new Yankee Stadium with some new names and and some more buzz and some bigger crowds, but yet still not sort of in a truly soccer friendly stadium and still, you know, the having to deal with the Yankees schedule and all that kind of stuff. And then this gigantic gleaming new stadium with 77,000 plus seats. And by the end of that season, that first season selling it out on multiple occasions, including a, a gigantic playoff game in, in August of 77, that just, just was not only record breaking, but groundbreaking on so many levels. And then to win the championship and his final game or semi partially final game a couple of weeks after that. I mean, you could not have scripted something so dramatic in such a short uh, but potent period of time. 
yeah, you would you would have think you know you wouldn't think that. I mean, the the best script writers that you know Warner Brothers had on their payroll at the time probably couldn't have written that script. Um, and and I think you know for me that that was you know that was a big reason why this book uh, that I've done with George Tiedemann um, really came about because it's mostly a photographic book. Um, George was there pretty much from from the get-go uh the first day at, at um in Philadelphia actually kicking out the first ball um for the Adams game right through and um you know so so the photos that we picked in the book in the four chapters um you know the first one covering that that first game and you can see in the in the pictures you know if you look you can see that the dirt has been painted and then into the second chapter um about growing the game you you can see in the pictures again the brand new yankee stadium but still not a perfect thing there are a lot of pictures on the dirt infield you know clouds of dust being kicked up when the ball is kicked um some swaths of empty blue seats um but still you can see it's a major update from you know chapter one to chapter two um and and that brings us into the yankee state or the uh, giant stadium move and again you can you can start seeing you know early games in the season um to that Rowdy's game in June when we had 62,000 and then finally, you know, filling, filling the stadium. And it, it was just, uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, it's a story that's never been told in this way before. Um, there were a couple of books that came out at the time um, about Pele's arrival here. And if I'm not mistaken, they didn't go through the 77 season. It was actually after the first season, uh, first or second season that the books came out. And then it's, it's covered in his various biographies, but nothing like this. I mean, George, George's photographs are spectacular. How does this uh, the idea for this book come uh, together uh, and maybe a little background on, on George, because uh, for those in the soccer world, uh, certainly they know him as the uh, uh, Colin Joe's uh, media award winner with the National Soccer Hall of Fame in 2007. But he's uh, probably uh, in the pantheon of sports uh, photographers, uh, not only in that decade, but multiple decades. No. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, George Tiedemann started out as a newspaper photographer. Um was hired by Bob Ellinger, the general manager of the Philadelphia Adams, in 1973 as the team photographer. Um, and then Bob eventually moved to become deputy commissioner of the NASL and, and basically brought George along as the league photographer. So he did a lot of the covers and a lot of the images that you see in the old in the old programs, the kick magazines, uh, some of which we've reproduced in the book. Um and after the NASL, George went on more than 25 years with Sports Illustrated, um, shot World Cups, World Series, Indy 500s, Daytona 500s, 
um, events all over the world. Um, had the cover shot when Argentina won the World Cup in '78. I, I don't know how many how many covers he, he had for Sports Illustrated, probably in the dozens. Um, so yeah, definitely one of one of the great uh, great sports photographers of of any time, I, I would say. Um, and I think most would most would agree if you, you see his his images certainly right up there. Um, with any of the great photographers that worked at the time for Sports Illustrated. Um, so, so how, how did the, how did this book to come together and what arguably what took so long? And 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 was his uh, work that uh, I guess it sounds like it was voluminous enough. He wasn't like the exclusive photographer of Pele and Warner Communications, was he? I mean, no, no, actually, he, he wasn't. He wasn't a team photographer. Um, he was working for the league most of the time. Um, but. You know, he was at all all the key moments um, and and how the book came about. It, it's really kind of a roundabout thing um, back in uh, before the World Cup in 1994. So 1993, um, this book had been been proposed or a a version of this book, let's say, uh, had been pitched to some publishers and. um MasterCard had initially agreed to do it and Pele was was a spokesperson for MasterCard and he shot he he sat for some photo shoots with George um and some interviews with Bob Ellinger uh who was originally the one that was going to write the book um and in the world of corporate sponsorship not sure exactly what happened but the book never got done um Nikon did an exhibit during the World Cup of George's photos from this era. Uh, it was down at the South Street Seaport in New York during the World Cup. Uh, a lot of the images that are in the book were in that exhibit at the South Street Seaport um, during the World Cup. After Pele passed away um, in December, um George had been trying to to find somebody to 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 publish the book and and he reached out to me to ask me if I would um write the text and and to me that that's akin to you know getting a phone call from Gershwin asking you you know to write the lyrics to to a, a musical about Mozart I mean uh you know a photography book by George Tiedemann about Pele, there was no way I could say, you know, no. I mean, it just, um, it, it just was, you know, something that I felt I had to do. And when the discussions with um, bigger publishers didn't pan out, um, I said to George, you know, we've published five books on our own. We we did five editions of the North American Soccer Guide. Um, we'll publish it. And so the wheels kind of started turning and, and went in motion there, worked out the framework of the book, uh, got a helping hand from the Pele Foundation um, in, in kind of putting it all together. And um, here we are. Well, Pele, his North, Pele, his North American years will be out in October. 
Yeah. So it's almost kind of like full circle for you, though, right? Professionally, because I mean, we go we go back. I mean, a lot of the your earliest professional uh, memories were in the embryonic years of that team spurred spurred on by his arrival around the time you were there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that that, you know, I mean, certainly and I've done so many things in my career. And and, it, you know, I've been involved in, in other sports as well. And, you know, I've covered the World Series and I've covered the Super Bowl. Uh, I spent the summer working in the National League office, baseball. Um, it was actually splitting duty between the National League and the Cosmos in 1976. Um, and, you know, I've had a, other opportunities um, to, to be involved in, in, in other sports. Um but I always kind of came back to soccer and it, it was not really like a Michael Corleone thing. The more I tried to get out, the more they pulled me back in. It was more of, this was really where my heart was. Um, you know, somebody, somebody once asked me about, you know, why, why have you stayed in soccer so long rather than, you know, go to work in major league baseball or the NBA or, or whatever. Um, and my feeling was basically soccer was a place I could make a difference in the sport, you know, in, in whatever little way, um, you know, I just felt I could make a difference as opposed to say, you know, I don't know, being somebody in a long line of PR people with the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox or whatever. Um, and that's why I always came back to the game. So let me ask you this question then. Um, the uh, the journey of, you know, into other uh, soccer teams and that kind of stuff being pulled back and and, and, and the like. Um, I, I, walk us through a little bit about the sort of the, the major ditch that happens after, let's call it the collapse of the NASL in 84-85. The sort of dark years, if you will, and the, you know, the whatever the diaspora of semi type pro leagues and stuff. And then the the reboot with the World Cup and all that kind of stuff um, for somebody who had been pulled back into soccer on a fairly regular basis uh, after the demise of the league and, and the grandest team in that league. And having been in that story, uh, it, it could not have been life affirming at that time. And is it now? And or how do you feel about where things stand today? I think we got a little bit of hint of it before. Um, did you ever see what is, exists today? It's still not perfect uh, at all in those years, uh, uh, bleakly worrying about what the sport would come back. I I think, you know, if you look at where things were by 1988, when the American Soccer League started off. Um, and, and, and I had been involved with a group earlier that was trying to start a league, and it eventually morphed into what became that American Soccer League. Um, and, and I was hired by the New Jersey team as, as the PR director. Uh, Dom Flora was the team uh, um general manager and clive toy was the president and one of the owners um and and they hired me to to do pr for the team and 
after the U.S. was awarded the World Cup in the summer of that year, we kind of realized that maybe something here could happen. Um, and that's why I started putting together an investor group um, for an expansion team in the ASL because the talk was, well, we're going to have promotion relegation. The ASL is very likely to be the backbone of this new league that that's being mandated by FIFA as, as part of awarding the world cup. Um, the problem was at that point, you couldn't really see investors with deep pockets who had that same vision. You know, I remember some of my partners talking about, oh, we're like the guys in the Hupmobile dealership when the NFL started. And I reminded them that, yeah, that was 1920. And it was really 1970s before NFL teams were really worth much. Uh, it was a long time and multi-generational. Um, but I, I think we had an inkling that something could happen because to look at the past, you could see the future. It's not like we were starting completely over because this big bang had already occurred and the seeds were there. You now were no longer looking at soccer as being almost strictly an ethnic sport. While, yes, the guys like Tony Miola and Tab Ramos and John Harks that went on to play in the national team came out of maybe ethnic enclaves like Kearney, New Jersey. It wasn't the same because they grew up watching the cosmos. So they grew up knowing, hey, we can play in a big stadium, not on these dirt fields. You know, we can draw big crowds, not you know, the 50 or 100 friends who come to the, you know, to the Sunday league games. So I, I think the inkling was there. Um, but it took until after the World Cup for somebody like Alan Rothenberg to really start convincing investors that, yeah, th this could be a major sport. But if 1977 doesn't happen, 1994 doesn't happen. And if 1994 doesn't happen, you and I are probably not having this conversation. That that's a that's a pretty stunning statement, and and it's hard to dis dispute it. Um, I, I, look, I mean, you and and to some extent, George, and and I guess some of the other folks that you've mentioned and or were colleagues with over, over the time, colleagues with during that, during, during this these times, uh, do, do you, do you consider yourselves or yourself uh, a keeper of the flame, so to speak? Because I would argue that despite those major moments, right, those don't just happen by themselves. There has to be some, if you will, cosmic events that sort of come together to make those happen. But the people who are chipping at the flint, right, uh, in between those uh, uh, periods of time, those situations, those big bangs, if you will, are people like yourselves, right, who still believe, who move along, keep keep whatever is around alive, keep that spirit sort of, uh, you know, going 
so that there will be another uh, uh, opportunity for some bigger flames and some 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 more b- bigger uh, platforms to, to come. Uh, do, do you ever fancy yourself as something approaching that? You know, I, I don't know that I ever really kind of look at it that way. But but yeah, I mean, I, I've been told by other people just that, you know, a sort of keeper of the flame. Um, I mean, even even people that have been involved in MLS and knew what I was doing, you know, in those in between years have, have said things to me about, you know, us keeping the sport alive in, in those sort of fallow years. Um, you know, I guess, I, you know, in some way I was I was a part of that, um, you know, and, and now I kind of look more, you know, I, I'm, I'm going on almost 50 years in sports. Um, I like to say I'm now semi-retired, uh, although a friend of mine says you're either retired or you're not. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to keep the history uh, of the game in, in the forefront uh, because I think it is too easy to, to, to say, oh, you know, soccer started 27 years ago or, you know, 29 years ago when the World Cup was here. Um, or, you know, Messi has this big, huge influence. Messi coming is is changing the, the, the trajectory of MLS, I think. It will remain to be seen exactly how big that change is. I don't think you can go by, you know, two months um, what the change is going to be. But the thing is, is, you know, okay, to say, oh, huge crowds well atlanta united you know broke the cosmos season attendance record a couple of years ago so it's not like there aren't teams in mls that are used to drawing 30 40 000 people a game um you know teams are now worth 500 million to a billion dollars um so it it's it's not like it's not like it's a huge, um, the same kind of huge boost, I think, that Pele brought because there weren't crowds that size. There weren't teams that had their own stadium. You know, heck, we didn't even have our own grass in the stadium. We had to paint it. Um, that's a huge, huge difference. And and I, I think Messi, you know, what he's done so far has been great. But I, I don't really think you can compare the two. No, and 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 I also think uh, you've got to give yourself some credit for that, too, because I, you've said it so well before. I mean, there without a lot of these things uh, beforehand, this 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 conversation and, and what's possibly to come. Uh, doesn't really happen. Is MLS perfect? Of course, it's not. Will it is it will it ever approach some of the the, the biggest leagues in in the world or in Europe and stuff? I, it's certainly a lot closer than it was 20, 30 years ago for sure, right? But there will always be those Euro snobs and stuff. But I mean, you cannot deny the infrastructure. You cannot deny uh, the valuations. You cannot deny uh, the impact it has had in U.S. sports. I mean, the fact that it's on television all the time, that it's m- in certain cities in this country, uh, as ravenous a fan base as you will find, 
maybe some of the bigger cities, still not much so like a Chicago, for example, sadly. But, you know, in L.A. and I, 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 you know, in some respects, if you have gone through that sort of big bang in the 70s and early 80s and and went through that, the, the nadir of 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 the nothingness and the the disillusionment that that existed as as a as a soccer fan, as I was at the time. And to think that in 1994 and the World Cup and then the, this thing would come back again. And now at a, at a level like this, I mean, I it it's hard. It's been a, it's been some kind of ride. But I what I partially like to do with this silly little show and personally, it, it emanated out of my Cosmos fandom. OK, Um and that, that's sort of how I sort of got attached to sports in the first place. People have heard this before. So I'm sorry if you've heard this again, friends who listen on a regular basis. Um the uh, you're absolutely correct because the all this stuff that is exists today can easily get lost um uh, uh, as to how it all came about and i'm not saying every chicago bears fan needs to know what went on in that room in 1920 uh, in order to be a quote unquote official chicago bears fan or you know people in new york the two teams that you know play there now need to always remember the new york cosmos and 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 that kind of stuff but it's really important not to forget it because this stuff doesn't just sort of happen overnight. And um, without people like yourself, without people uh, like George, without people like half the people that you mentioned in the past, um, there is no today conversation about Major League Soccer, et cetera, and Messi. Um, and that's the part I, I don't want to see go away uh, at all. I think it has to be part of the fabric uh, going forward. And, and, you know, God forbid, we're doing a little bit of that with this, you know, these conversations. Yeah. I, I think how far the sport has come since 1996. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, I think you can almost look at it. I, I remember my father grew up in Italy telling me that he who plants an olive tree never eats from its fruit. And I, I think in a little bit, in, a, in in some way, that is maybe true of what happened here in soccer, is that, you know, those seeds were planted in 1975. And now that tree has grown and it's taken root and it's strong. And, you know, MLS is a big five league. There are people that will say, no, it's still not, but it is there. There's no denying it. You, you, you can't, you know, when you have your own stadiums or when you're filling NFL stadiums and you've got the kind of ownership and you've got the kind of money behind it. And again, like you said, it's not perfect. I'd like to see better on TV and, you know, things like that. But the league is one of the major sports leagues in this country. And I think the roots that it has are from the seeds that were planted in that painted dirt in 1975. All right, our thanks to Charles. And um, let's see now. The book is called Pele, His North American Years, A Tribute. And again, it features the writing of Charles Catone, our guest this week. And the amazing photography of George Tiedemann, uh, and it literally is uh, a, a blow-by-blow sort of uh, encapsulation 
of Pelé's uh, time with the New York Cosmos uh, during the mid-1970s. It is a, uh, a keepsake, a, a, a wonderful throwback. Uh, you will enjoy it. And if you are listening to this episode, uh, the day this uh, episode drops, the uh, 23rd of October, 2023, and you happen to be in the New York City metropolitan area, uh, and it's still relatively early in the day, get yourself over to the Pele store in Times Square, why don't you? Because at 3 o'clock this afternoon, the 23rd, Charles will be there and George will be there. Uh, and then the official launch of the book will be happening. Uh, I believe they're also uh, launching uh, the book uh, at the other Pele stores in the United States as well, in Miami, uh, in Orlando, and I believe one also in Anaheim, California. Um, so if you get a chance, go over, tell them that you heard us here on this uh this great little show of ours, and uh, I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, sign, and George will be happy to sign the book and in uh, 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 in uh, thanks for coming on by and uh, and helping that book uh, get out there. Uh, you can also order it, of course, online wherever good books are found. But uh, if you'd like to do us a favor and help support our little uh, show here, by all means, go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode number 322 with Charles Catone, and you will find a convenient couple of links there to the book. You will be taken to Amazon uh, very conveniently, and we'll get a couple of referral uh, uh, dimes or nickels uh, of love. We appreciate that very much. That uh, helps. It uh, goes to our coffer to keep our lights on. And again, it's called Pele, His North American Years, a tribute, uh, co-authored, if you will, by uh, photographer extraordinaire George Tiedemann and author extraordinaire Charles Catone. It is published by Sports View Interactive. And again, our thanks to Charles for uh, reliving some of that. And as you probably heard, a few little uh, elements in there. Uh, Charles has uh, got a really interesting background and is uh, probably very well suited for a show like this. And uh, Lord knows we've got some other things to explore with him, I think, in the realms of not only soccer, but uh, the Women's Basketball League and the ABA and uh, the National Lacrosse League and even the thing called the Super Soccer League. I'll let you look that up because that's certainly an episode we've got uh, very much in the back of our minds. Uh, our thanks to Charles. Our thanks to you for listening, of course. Uh, you can follow Charles uh, on um, the various uh, social media. You'll find a, a Facebook page devoted to the book. Uh, and you can also follow him on the X slash Twitter uh, monstrosity that is at CC, the letter C, the letter C, sports, at CC sports. Uh, while you're online, follow us on Twitter slash X. We're at uh, Good Seats Still uh, on Instagram and threads. And uh, where else? On Facebook, you'll find us also at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, our email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, our thanks, of course, to Jerry Payne, the great Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Uh, licking his wounds, if you will, the uh, abrupt departure of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, but uh, I guess the only solace in that is that just about every team that had 100 wins or more uh, also bowed out early. So I don't know, maybe it was something in the water this year. Don't take it personally, Jerry. Uh, and uh, our thanks to you for listening. We appreciate it. Tell your friends, uh, rate us, review us, do whatever you need to do. Uh, that's how we get uh, the word out there. We appreciate your listenership as always. Until next week, take care of yourselves, everybody. Okay, be safe. <laughs>